Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Isn't that a great verse? Probably one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Certainly one of my favorites. It is a wonderful and very concise gospel declaration. Right? And, as we, and as you think about how wonderful that verse is, right, we can start with just the subject of the verse. Who is it about? Well, it's the Son of Man. The Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-declaration, which harkens back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Just get a picture of the Son of Man. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man, the one with everlasting dominion, the only begotten Son of God, equal in glory to the Father and the Spirit, head of the church, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess his lordship. The Son of Man. And what did this Son of Man do? Why did he come? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. His glorious life to pay the penalty for our sins so that he might bring us back to God. This is why God the Son took on flesh, becoming a son of man. This was Jesus' whole purpose for the incarnation. And this gospel is both the foundation and the capstone of our faith. We rest on it, the glorious truth of a gracious and merciful, mighty creator who would stoop to the level of the creature in order to redeem them. All purest and everlasting joy is founded on this truth. You should rest your life on it. Nothing else will connect you to God. You can't know God apart from this gospel news. Because this gospel, this self-lowering, this is the very heart of God displayed. Now as glorious as this gospel is, and as much as my primary intent is just that you would believe this gospel. That's not what Jesus is focused on when he speaks the words in Mark 10, verse 45. See, that sentence starts with, for, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, which means that he's using the weight of the truth of this gospel to actually ground something else that he's trying to teach. And that something else that Jesus intended to communicate when he makes this statement is the message that I have for you today. The message in its simplest form, you must lower yourself. You must lower yourself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This message, that you must lower yourself, think of it like a sharp spearhead 
that is meant to pierce the heart of anyone who truthfully realizes what Jesus did for them on the cross. And it needs to be driven in deep because prideful sinners like ourselves, even after being saved, are naturally and reflexively opposed to lowering ourselves. Quite the opposite. We want elevation. We want to be lifted up. We want to be seen. We want to be praised. But that is not the way to glory, according to our Lord. Lifting yourself up is not the way to life. And so our loving Father who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble comes with this message for our hearts. You must lower yourself. It's a gracious call to humility. In the book of Mark, this sharp point of humility, the shaft that stands behind it is three stories that occur in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 that all teach the same lesson. You must lower yourself. And then this teaching reaches its climax at Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, came not to be served but to serve. And so what I want to do this morning is to walk you through these three episodes. But what we're trying to do is we're going to grab a hold of the shaft behind this message so we can take the spearhead of the message of humility and pierce our hearts with it that we might shine as lights in the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me because apart from the Spirit, we can do nothing. Father, I ask your children gather to ask this morning that you would teach us and instruct our hearts, transform us by the renewal of our minds, give us the grace to receive the word that you have for us, that we would be a glory to you, and that Jesus' name would be praised. Amen. So we're going to start at episode 1, Mark 8, verses 31 to 35. So please open there so you can follow along as I walk through the story. And what you're going to notice is that each of these stories begins with a spoken revelation of Jesus' death and resurrection that binds them all. And in each of them, the disciples reject that revelation. And then Jesus has to correct them, providing some remediation. So the name of the song today is You Must Lower Yourself, Jesus Christ, 32 AD. The rhythm of this song is revelation, rejection, remediation. Revelation, rejection, remediation. Listen for this in each episode. Revelation begins in the first story in Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he's speaking this right after he says to Peter and the disciples, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. Jesus confirms that he is Messiah. And then he goes on to say, and Messiah is going to die and to rise. And in verse 32, it tells us that he said this plainly. This is what's going to happen. I am going to die and I am going to rise. The response of the disciples is not one of faith. It's not one that says, oh yeah, we've seen that in the scriptures. We know what you're talking about, Jesus. It's actually one of rejection. The revelation is rejected. In verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The Lord speaks to Peter. A word of truth. Peter, who walked on water in the power of the Lord, right? who saw the transfiguration, who saw the miraculous catch of fish, Jesus, who should know that this one speaks with the authority of God, says, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen, and rebukes the Lord. Why? What would cause 
a disciple as Peter, who was so close to the Lord, was one of the pe- he's the one who said, Jesus, you are the Christ, like he knows. What would cause him to reject the word of his Lord? Well, there's two likely reasons. One is that he has a faulty understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. That he with the other Jews were thinking that what the Christ was going to do was going to come and he was going to mount up his Jewish army and was going to take out the Romans and they were going to have victory right then and there. And now this guy's talking about dying and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Not that. You got to be kidding me. Second possible reason is pride. Here's, here's this guy, this Messiah. I have given my life to follow him. My life is bound up with him. I go where he goes. I do what he says. And now he's talking about dying? I can't eat that. But notice that Peter is not an unusual man. Peter is not especially dense. Peter's a normal guy. Think about why people reject the word of God. One, they have faulty understanding. They hear the word and it doesn't fit their concept of God. Many times have you heard this? I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Right? I have a concept of God and when God speaks to me, I say, no, that can't possibly be it because it doesn't fit my concept. The history of Israel. Spoken to many, I can't believe in a God who would have a people go into a land and slaughter all the pagans there. Right? That just doesn't fit my concept of God. That's what God said that he did. And there's good reason for it. And I could tell you what the reasonings are according to scripture, but people don't want to hear it. Nope, it doesn't fit my concept. Or even just Israel's election, right? The whole Old Testament is bound up in God first before he declares the gospel to the nations dealing with just one particular people. People say, well, what about everybody else in the world? Why, why, why couldn't God just choose all nations? Because that's not what God did. But rather than listen to God's word, they reject God out hand because it doesn't fit their concept of what God should be like. And even those who profess faith, even professing Christians, often reject the clear teaching of the word. And it's based on faulty understanding, and sometimes it's just based on pride. Think about the LGBTQ agenda. We want to believe the Bible, but I have a desire that I want to fulfill, and if God says That desire is wrong. Well, I can't believe that. Or I have friends who have these desires that they want to fulfill, and God says it's wrong, so I can't receive God's word. That's I can't receive that. I got to support my friends. That's nothing but pride. Like you know better than God. And so when the rejection comes, there needs to be correction. And in this story, there is a remediation that Jesus does. He hears the rejection, and in love, he begins to correct Peter's faulty understanding and address his pride. And it starts with a rebuke in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Now he sees what's happening. He turns and sees the disciples who are watching this. Peter openly rejecting the word of the Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's sharp. You don't get a much harsher rebuke than that. He names Peter with the evil one, whose name means adversary. But to reject the word of God is to be an adversary of God. To pursue what is contrary to the word and will of Christ is to be an enemy of Christ, Satan. 
And Jesus explains why Peter has taken up this very dangerous position. He says, Peter, you are setting your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. And in having that very mindset, he becomes God's adversary. If your thought patterns are governed by the expectations and the motivations of this world, contrary to the word of God, you will find yourself in opposition to God. That's why James 4.4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. The world stands in opposition to God, and we have to choose a side. If your love and your affections and your desires are with the world, you will find yourself with God as your enemy. But God is patient and kind. He offers correction. And so this is what he says after rebuking Peter. In verse 34 and 35, he calls the crowd to him. He says, everybody come to me, calls with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You must lay down all concepts that are contrary to Christ. Lose your life. You must lay aside your own personal pride in what you think and what you believe you understand. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to rejoice in salvation, you got to lay those things aside. Jesus says you must pursue conformity to him and to his word. And sometimes that feels like death. Sometimes it might actually mean your death. But the point is still the same. You must lower yourself. This is what Jesus says in the face of pride. To obtain life in the eternal kingdom of God, you must loosen your grip on the pleasures of this life, the expectations of this world, and the motivation of earthly gain. You have to open your heart to listen and follow the Lord. You can't hold on to pride. You must lower yourself. We've reached the first hook. Did you see how that worked? There was revelation, rejection, and remediation, and then we hit the hook. You must lower yourself. Let's see it again in the second episode. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 35. We'll call this episode Willful Worldly Ignorance. So here's the revelation. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed... After three days, he will rise. This revelation is happening after the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter, James, and John have gotten to see Jesus with his clothes brilliantly dazzling white, standing, talking to Moses and Elijah on the mountain, discussing what's about to happen. They hear the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And what Jesus begins to say is, Listen, I am going to be killed, and then I am going to rise. And he even gives more detail than he gave in Mark 8, 31 to 32. But again, there comes a sort of rejection in verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This time, rejection comes in a complete Lack of comprehension. Not only didn't they get it, as plain as those words are, somehow they didn't understand what he was saying, and they did not ask for clarification, though they themselves recognized that they did not understand. This, 
again, is pride. They're trying to avoid the shame of not knowing what Jesus is saying. Pride, it manifests itself in all kinds of ways when we don't know stuff. One that hits me all the time is when you come up to somebody in the church and you don't know their name. And you're like, hey, brother. Hey, sister, good to see you. And right, you sort of casually find someone else. Like, do you know what their name is? Right, because you wouldn't dare say to them, could you remind me your name again? I'm sorry, I forgot. Like, you wouldn't dare reveal that you are so fallible as to forget a name. It's pride. And that's on a small level, right? This, this is more important stuff. When God's word seems unclear, do you seek understanding? Or you just kind of say, well, I don't, I don't get it. No big deal. You know, I, would, I wouldn't want to ask somebody or look like I don't comprehend everything that's in the Bible. So rather you don't seek understanding and you manifest pride. Right? Why did God speak? Does he just say things for no reason? Does he say things so that you could be confused? Does a father speak to his children that way? Well, his desire is that you would understand. But you got to seek understanding. You have to admit to a lack of understanding in order to pursue understanding. You have to lay aside pride. Pride says, I already know enough. I don't need to figure that one out. And this prideful rejection continues in this episode in verses 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So here's Jesus declaring to them his death and resurrection. And what are they doing? They don't ask him for clarification on that. They turn to the side and start boasting about their own accomplishments. Jesus is telling them about the glorious future of their redemption, and they're over here comparing Facebook and Instagram likes. Who's, who's the greatest? Oh, I got 377 likes. What you got, Andrew? And Jesus knows this. And so he, he brings it out by asking them, what, what were you guys talking about? And then he gives them lovingly some remediation. Okay, you guys are acting silly again. You're rejecting the word. I'm going to teach you. In verse 35, he sat down and he called the 12. Come here, my sons. And he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's a simple how-to. So I know, I know that you guys want to be great. Let me tell you how to be great. Not great in the eyes of men. Great in reality. Great in the eyes of the Lord. And the instruction is very contrary to what the word teaches. His greatness is not doing great things. It's not popularity. It's not living your best life now. I want to be a great Christian. Do you want to be a great Christian? Like, I don't think anybody is like, you know what? I'm just going to be a lackluster Christian, and that's going to be fine with me. I think everybody who's born again has a desire in heart to be a, at least a good Christian, but maybe even a great Christian. And Jesus says, this is what you have to do. Be a servant. Whoever is great among you, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You must lower yourself. And this call to Jesus' followers echoes throughout Scripture. I mean, we hear it everywhere. In Romans 12.10, Apostle Paul writes to the saints, outdo one another in showing honor. Right? This, is, this is godly, acceptable competition. Outdo one another in seeing who could love the other one better. Outdo one another in seeing who could respond to a need first. Outdo one another in who's going to be the first and the most consistent at laying aside their own desires for the sake of others. We ought to be fighting to show honor to one another. 
Not to lift ourselves up, not to say, hey, look at how great a Christian I am because I beat you. I held the door for you. You were trying to get in. <laughs> right? but, it, but, it's, but it's in the concept of playing your hardest, doing your best to glorify the Lord. Like if you're in sports and you compete, a good coach always say, well, just go out there and do your best. Right? If the other person's better than you, you're going to lose the game. But I'm not as concerned about you losing. I'm concerned about you playing well. I'm concerned about you using the gifts that you have and being diligent to practice and go out there and play your little heart out. We'll see what happens. Right? And when you win, don't boast. Right? You just played well. Good. It's the same thing. Outdo one another in showing honor. Right? Don't do it so that you could lift up yourself over your brother. But do it because you got gifts. And you have the spirit. Play your heart out in the Christian life. Love one another. Challenge one another. Philippians 2.3 says to the saints, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's 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 a command. Lower yourself. Think of other people as more important than you, regardless of what your position is. And it connects it to Christ's example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So if you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ, then you must lower yourself. This is our calling for his glory. All right, let's do one more. Episode number three. We'll call this episode Pursuit of Position. Mark 10, verse 32 to 44, which our brother Joel read for us this morning. Again, opens with a revelation Verse 32 to 34, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of him, walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So far the most detailed description of the humiliation Of the glorious Son of Man. And what's the response of the disciples? It's as if they have completely stopped listening. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want us to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. This is not misunderstanding. This is not confusion. This is sort of just complete apathy to what Jesus is talking about. They're too busy thinking about what they can gain in the midst of these happenings rather than the fate of their master. We want a favor. This is rejection of the revelation of God motivated by self-concern. The last lesson that they heard in Matthew 9 must have just went in one ear and out the other. We want to be great in your kingdom, Lord. Give us a spot. And in 41, it says, when the ten heard it, the other two, they were indignant at James and John. They were mad too. And it probably was an indignation like, oh, those guys are not being humble. So I'm like, wait, they're trying to get in the top spot. We want to be in the top spot. Everybody's clamoring for position. In the face of the revelation of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus has to instruct them again. Marvel at the patience of our God. Come on, fellas. Let me tell you something. In verse 38, Jesus said to them, I'm sorry, he starts in 30. 
8, you do not know what you are asking. James and John, you don't know what you are asking. You want to be seated at my right and in my left in glory. You don't know what that entails. I'm about to drink a very bitter cup. I'm about to be baptized with a baptism of fire. You want to do that? Right? You want to go up? You want to be high? The way up is down. That's the way that I'm going. And then he tells him in verse 40, To sit at my right hand, my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Even if I wanted to entertain your ambition, it's already decided who's going to sit at the right and the left. You don't get to curry that favor from me. And then in verse 42, Jesus called them to him. And he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You still have the wrong concept of greatness. You have a worldly concept. In the world, the rulers lord it over their subjects. It means they, they strongly assert their authority. They dominate over the people that are smaller than them. That's not God's concept of leadership. And, and to grasp what God's concept of authority looks like comes out as he tells fathers how to lead. He tells parents how to parent. Tells elders how to lead a flock. It applies across the board to anyone who is in a position of authority. It's not for you to strongly assert power because you have been given a position. You've been given a position so that you can serve. You have been given the power to lower yourself and work for the good of those under your charge. If you're a teacher, if you're a boss, if you're a carpenter shop worker, if you're a pastor, a dad, a mom, all the authority that you have over the ones in your charge is so that you can lower yourself and serve them. This, This is why complementarianism gets a bad rap. Because there's lots of men out there who are exerting authority over their wives and being harsh with them. And the world looks at it and they're like, that's nonsense. How could you say that the husband is the head when the husbands are treating the wife like this? See, it's not God's word's fault. It's not God's fault. The husband's not doing it right. The reason why the husband is given headship over the wife so that he can give up his life to serve her. The concept of greatness in all of Christ's kingdom is service. The one who is the greatest serves. So wherever you are and whoever is under your charge, you must lower yourself. You must lower yourself against your natural bent towards pride in the face of our sometimes willful ignorance of the word, Instead of clamoring and fighting for position, we must lower ourselves. Why? Well, we're back to the climax. Mark 10, 45. For even. F-O-R-E-V-E-N. For. This is the reason. For. Even. Presenting an argument from the greater to the lesser. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. For him to lower himself is the most unusual thing. It is the greatest condescension. It is the greatest act of humility. It is the most unexpected thing. You, who are low by nature, it should be no thing for you to put yourself low. For even the Son of Man lowered himself. Who who else has a reason for pride? Who has a reason for pride but the one who is in the very form of God? 
co-equal with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. Who has more of a right to claim position? The Son of Man, the rightful King of all creation whose throne endures forever. He could have come and said, bow down before me, you servants. You're mine. I made you. That's not at all what he does. He humbles himself like to the lowest of the low. First, by taking on the form of a servant, glorious God the Son takes on the likeness of sinful flesh. And then he keeps going lower. Not only does he take on the nature of a creature, but he humbles himself by obedience to his Father's word to the point of death. And that even death on a cross, down, 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 down. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That one lowered himself. And therefore, you, as his follower, as his child, as his imitator, must lower yourself. So we finished the song. Now we're going to think about application. We're going to think about applying this truth. Four application points. First is form and function. Second is motivation. Third is mortification. And fourth is approximation. So first, the form and the function. What is the form that we are seeking to be shaped to as we pursue these radical acts of humility? Well, we're being remodeled in the image of Christ, right? Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Like if you're in the Lord, it's going to happen. You are going to become more and more humble if you are regenerate. And you are taken in the word of God is going to happen. And you're going to be made and shaped to be more and more like the Lord Jesus who lowered himself from the highest position. And this is how our lives will bear testimony to the gospel. That's the function. Why do I have to lower myself? Right? You're not trying to earn salvation. Because salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone. The guy on the cross had no time to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation came because of Jesus Christ's righteousness. So you're not lowering yourself to earn a position with God. You're not clamoring for position. You see the beauty of Christ. And you want to be like him. And because you love him, you, you spiritually... Because of your new nature, seek to pursue that likeness. And it's by that likeness that people will see Jesus Christ in the world. We are his body, which means we should be doing what he's doing. And if his was a position of meekness and humility and self-lowering, his body should be a demonstration of that very thing so that the world can see our good works and see our humility and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Self-sacrifice for the good of others is the gospel. So when you pray and you think, I want people to see Christ in me, That doesn't happen because you have precise doctrine. That's not what seeing Christ is. Though precise doctrine is important for properly displaying the person of Christ. It's not self-righteousness. People are not going to see Christ in you because you hold to certain laws and you will not bend from them. And you look at them in their sin and you say, shame on you. That's not showing Christ in the way that we're talking about. It's not religious practice. It's not just, I am the person who comes to church every Sunday, and I never miss a church event. I like to be at church. That's not how Christ gets displayed in the world. It is a function of your Christ-likeness, to love the people of God and to be among the people of God. But it's not just the practice of the thing, it's the heart of the thing. 
Is there within you as you do these things? Is there within you as you seek to obey God and keep his commandments? Is there within you as you study the proper doctrine that comes from the scripture? Is there within you a heart of love and self-sacrifice that is discernible by the people in your life? That's how they're going to see Christ. That's how all of your practices and your knowledge and, and your growing in righteousness is going to be confirmed. If it's not just about you showing off how good you are, but it's you taking all of those graces from the Lord and using it to be a blessing to your brethren and to your neighbors. That's form and function. Next, motivation. We need some motivation to do this. We'll look at one more picture of the great one in John chapter 13. All right, this, is, this is the very wild scenario in which the king of all the universe stoops down before his disciples and does the actual work of a servant, which is to wipe their nasty feet. And Peter, who is always a little bit confused, is like, no, Lord, I'm not going to wash my feet. Right? You're the Christ. The Lord says, no, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. In verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. It's the same concept. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Even I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You could wash some feet. You should wash some feet. And he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Not only should you lower yourself because it's your calling, not only should you lower yourself because that's what's going to bring the Lord glory, but it is good for you. You are going to be blessed and encouraged and helped when you lower yourself for the sake of others. In Matthew 23, the Lord says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There is a blessing for you in pursuing humility. In the same way that Jesus was lifted up by his father out of his very low state that he willingly took, so we also will be vindicated by God in our humility, even if our greatness is never seen or acknowledged in the world. Third application, mortification. Mortification. Right? Why don't we pursue self-lowering? It's sin. To not pursue humility is sin. To not lower yourself is sin. Now, what we do in our culture is we sort of laugh at it and, and we relegate real sacrificial living to like the super Christians. And we just sort of snicker and we're like, I could never do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm too selfish. And you condemn yourself right there. You laugh about sin. These things ought not be so. Lacking the desire or the ability to sacrifice for others is a sin issue. And when we recognize it, we ought not laugh at it, but we ought to go at it with the sword of the Spirit and kill it. Because it is hindering you from the blessings that are promised. It's hindering you from displaying the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he lavished upon you. So kill it. Strike it down. Whether it's sharing your toys or giving your time, opening up your home or opening up your mouth to share the gospel. We have to put to death the self-serving desires of the flesh that keep us from doing these things for the sake of Christ. So you can ask yourself, as you meditate on this, 
How do you reject the word of God? Through a lack of trust in his word? And do you not really believe that the treasures that Jesus promises you in heaven are worth the sacrifices that you have to make here on earth? Is it the pride? Are you, are you trying to gain greatness the worldly way? And that's drawing you from obedience to the Lord? Is it apathy? Do you just not really care what the Lord says? Like you're happy to claim Christianity and say I'm a believer, but, but you don't love him enough to actively pursue obedience to his word? Or is it complete disbelief? Like, you, like are you just not a believer at all? Well, the call today to you is to repent and to believe. Because at this point, if you're an unbeliever, it's because you are too proud to receive the gospel. The truth of a God who would save you despite any of your own doing, who would condemn you as a sinner, but not for his own mercy and grace, is offensive to proud people. Lower yourself. Receive the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's for you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Lower yourself and believe. And in believing... All of your sins of apathy, pride, disbelief, all of those things will be covered by the blood of Jesus for past, present, and future. And this will free you to joyfully and confidently pursue greater conformity to the one who saved you. And this is our final application, approximation. If you are saved by Jesus, your sins are forgiven by Jesus, and you love Jesus, and you want to be like Jesus. And suddenly to you, self-sacrifice becomes the most beautiful thing in your eyes. You see that and you love it. Now, you're not going to become Jesus tomorrow. Right? You're, you're not going to, generally speaking, make some humongous bound from like, I'm too scared to leave my house and mention that I'm a Christian, to now I'm going to go serve in Indonesia as a missionary. Generally doesn't work like that. Sanctification is a slow, progressive, consistent work. And so like what we used to say in personal training, you got to have closer and closer approximations to the desired outcome. If you want to lift one day 300 pounds and today you can only lift 30 pounds, tomorrow lift 35. And the next time, try to lift 40. And so on and so 300 is way far off. But if you just keep coming back to it, you just keep getting a little better, a little more conformed, you're going to move in that direction, and you might even get there. right? And that concept is the same in your prayer life. I don't pray at all. My prayer life is really dead. Well, devote a little more time to praying. Spend a little more time there. Sweat a little. Stay on your knees and wait upon the Lord. Maybe you do it for five minutes today. Maybe next time you do it for seven minutes, right? And you, and you slowly, slowly approximate what you want to be. Reading the scripture. I don't read the Bible at all, or I read very little. All right, I'm going to read the Bible every day. I'm going to read it for an hour every day. No, 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 no. Do what you can do. Start with a couple minutes, then add a little more. Build it in, closer and closer approximation. So look around you and see how you can sacrifice yourself for others. Start with what is accessible to you, your friends, your family, people that you live with. Like, how, how can you lower yourself to serve them? How can you be a blessing? How have you been missing opportunities to bless others because of your own desires? There's two in my life that I recognize very quickly. One is food, and I'll include coffee in that. If I get a cup of coffee or I'm about to eat and I'm really hungry, and my children, whom I have been given to love and serve and raise in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, and they say, Daddy, automatically I'm like, you are violating the sacred space of my self-pleasure. I can't serve you right now. It's funny, but it's sin. It's something that I need to kill. Or or I'm tired with my time. right? I have already ordained that these hours are going to be spent studying scripture. Wife, I can't serve you. How dare you? It's pride. 
needs to die. Fatigue. Oh, they asked me to serve, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a little tired today. Right? I, can't, I can't serve anybody. Right? You're, you're encroaching upon my own self-renewal. Right? Sometimes, yeah, you got to rest. But a lot of times you could probably push through for the sake of someone else. Jesus Christ was really tired when he had the cross on his back and climbed the hill. And he got a little help, but he pushed through for you. And we're supposed to approximate that. Not going to get there tomorrow, but, but we, we're trying to move in that direction. So, so that's what I want you to think about as we close. So let the Spirit have his work. What does he bring into mind that you can do today? Like as I've sat here talking about this and this call to lower yourself, probably things have been flashing through your mind, people, opportunities that you have passed up or that you have missed. Don't, don't let those sort of like fly out. Grab them, write them down if you need to, um, talk to somebody about them so you can have accountability because we all have desires that we need to put away for the glory of Christ the furtherance of his kingdom and the building up of the church. You must lower yourself. We must lower ourselves. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we need the grace to lower ourselves. We have seen your majesty and your humility, and your service in the person of your Son. We have seen it as beautiful, and we seek to imitate it, but we need you. Help us to lay our desires aside that we might serve for the sake of your name. Father, soften the hearts of those who have heard this word of the gospel today and are still stuck in pride. Lord, free them by the power of your hand to see Christ and to seek Christ in humility. Amen.